Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false or could read to an idol. And does not swear deceitfully. He, that man, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. So lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. So last night, we had an Easter vigil. We came in here at 9.30. We opened our hearts before God in prayer. And then we proceeded in a two-hour reading of the entire Gospel of John without pause. It was a blessing. I had never been in a room of Christians hearing a live reader go through an entire Gospel. I was very proud of Nobody dropping out and giving up. What a blessing that we had so many people willing to sit for two hours in the dark listening to the Gospel of John. And then at midnight, right before midnight, we left this darkened sanctuary with candles. We went around outside, and Lord love Twin Peaks, even though it was not a windy night, there's always a spot where there's a gust. Somewhere in Twin Peaks, the wind is blowing. I'm serious. At our, you always think it's really cold when you leave the doors at our house. We're in Twin Peaks. We're right under Strawberry Peak. And then you get to the village, and you're like, it is so hot. Why am I wearing a jacket? Twin Peaks. And so on our way, the gust threatened to snuff out the last candle, but a remnant held on. I think it might have only been Katrina. And we were able to relight and to continue. The cross going before us. The darkness that we entered into, leaving this darkened sanctuary into the dark of night, we were following that night. What Good Friday, Jesus dies for our sins. Sunday, he raises from the dead. He's risen from the dead. That's what we celebrate today. But what is Saturday for? 
What is Saturday about? I heard somebody. I I don't remember they're talking to me or to somebody else I overheard. I don't remember. There's a lot that's kind of meshed together in this week in my mind right now. Um, Some of you are like, what is Saturday for? This is what Saturday is for. It's for the moment when Jesus... See, we usually look at Jesus' death and say, from, from an earthly perspective and say, he died, we'll wait till Sunday. But that's not the full story. What happens when you die? Or maybe we should say, what happened when you died prior to the resurrection of the Son of God on that Passover almost 2,000 years ago? Well, whatever happened to souls then is what happened to Christ because he took on the entirety of our human nature. Therefore, he experienced exactly what a human experiences in death. And so as we entered into the dark of night, we entered with Christ into the descent to the underworld. Hades. Hell, Shoal, Death. There's a multitude of names. It's all the same. It's the place where the dead went. Now, we read some Psalms at our prayer service that talked about Shoal. You read your Bible, you see the word Shoal. What is Shoal? It's the place of the dead. It's a Hebrew word. The New Testament uses the word Hades. It's a Greek word for the same place of the dead. It is the realm of the devil. It is where he's Lord. And death has been his servant since the beginning. Snatching all and not one has ever evaded the... Evaded, not invaded. No one has ever evaded, escaped the grasp of this greedy empire. Christ allowed himself to be swallowed up by this empire so that... From the inside, he may destroy it. This is a Trojan horse story that actually happened. And it's on a cosmic scale. And this was no horse that entered. This was the Son of God in human flesh. So we entered into the night with our candles, following the Christ, going into the descent to Hades with him. And when we came back to the church, the gates were barred. You guys know, well, you don't probably see them, but when you come in on the sides, there are these heavy rolling doors, big old gates. And we congregated in front of the gate. We read of the resurrection of the empty tomb. We read Psalm 24. And I pounded on the gates, and my hand still hurts quite a bit. (laughs) Really railed on these gates and yelled, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Giovanni was playing the devil. He was on the other side of the gate. And he, with mockery, shouted, Who is this king of glory? To which we, with the cross before us, respond, The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. 
And then, we don't know, but Satan probably like, bar the gates, no one open. And then again, I pound on the gates. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And once again, the devilish Giovanni says, who is this king of glory? And then I answer the last verse of this psalm. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. And at that, Jesus, I was playing for a moment, rips open the gates and his people flood in. We flood in, chanting, the Lord of hosts is the king of glory. The Lord of hosts is the king of glory. But when we come into what was once was darkness, what once was death, what once was Hades, we come in into a fully lit sanctuary. We come into a sanctuary with plants and with flowers because when Christ entered and passed through the gates of Hades, life swallowed death. Hades could no longer hold its grip on the soul's Death quivered before him. And so we enacted. That's what we did. We enacted that. And I'm sharing this not to make you feel left out. That's not my goal at all. Um, My goal is to give you a picture so you can see what maybe this would have looked like. And so that next year, maybe you can schedule coming into your schedule. It seems to me to be well worth it. And you can watch me break my hand again. But what, what did all that mean? I guess I already told you what it all meant. But here, here, here's, what, here's what we need to see about the resurrection. So often, we look at Easter, we talk about the resurrection, and we paint it as this picture of proof! He was God! As if that's the only thing that matters. It totally does. But God was not so much sending his son to get people to believe in him, No, please, please understand that there is a God. Look at Jesus. There is a God. Yes, that's obviously very important. But God is sending his son to rescue his people from death. And I don't just mean clinical death. Oh, he's going to rescue me from that terrible moment when I go flatline. That's so small-minded thinking when it comes to the gospel. Death is, in the Bible, personified as a monster. Death is a... It's kind of weird, but it's a living thing. It swallows people up. Death is something that holds people forever. It holds them in bondage in this life. Death is not just a thing that happens to us. It's a realm that swallows us into its tyranny. It enslaves us, for the wages of sin is death. It is a kingdom that humanity is enslaved to. They don't have a choice. Adam and Eve decided to give their allegiance to this kingdom. Did not God say, in the day you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But they didn't fall down dead when they ate the fruit. Instead, what happened was they went from the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden to the kingdom of the devil, also known as death and sin. So the resurrection of Christ is the final triumphant proclamation of his authority. The resurrection of Christ is the final triumphant proclamation of his authority over everything. Everything. 
This is why the oldest Christian hymn, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, says, Therefore God has highly exalted Christ and given him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Those in heaven, that makes sense. Those on earth, that makes sense. And those under the earth? Did you ever notice that phrase? What do you do with that? And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Under the earth. When Christ descends to Hades, the king of glory brings worship even in the place of the dead. This is authority. He does not enter death as a slave. He does not enter death in chains and in bondage. He enters death and wraps the chains around death. He binds, Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, he binds the strong man and plunders his goods. Did not Israel plunder the Egyptians when they left? Christ plunders the devil and leads a host of captives free. Okay, now, I'm totally hitting on and emphasizing something that I personally haven't heard any sermons on. And for a long time, I myself resisted the concept of Christ going to hell. How does God go to hell? Well, remember, we're not saying the eternal lake of fire. That's not what we're saying. We're saying the place of the dead, which the devil holds. So when I started to realize that there's something to this doctrine, it really captured my affection for what Christ came to accomplish so I want to, my goal tonight is not to defend this doctrine. I did not have the time this week to do that. Nor do I think that that might be the most interesting message in the world. I just want to show you some of the hints that this is a totally valid belief in the Bible. And that, um, and then, well, yeah, we'll go from there. So, um, did this actually happen? Did Christ actually descend into Hades? Did he actually descend into death, into the underworld? Well, Here's the problem. You don't have a clear, like, okay, in the Gospels, you have this clear account of his death on the cross. And he got it four times. It's like, it's no, there's no, nothing vague about that. There it is. And he said these seven words and all these things going on on the cross. But when it comes to his descent into the underworld, all we get are little hints and phrases scattered through the New Testament. And it's agonizing because you don't have a picture of it. You just get these hints, these suggestions. You're like, tell me more about that. But they don't tell us more about that. What we should see in that is that this was such a common concept in the early church that when they mentioned his descent into the underworld, they never felt a need to explain what that meant. That's what that means. So when it's used casually, it means it's known very well. So here's some of the hints we get in scripture. In Psalm 16, which we read at prayer, 16 verse 10, uh, David there prays, you will not leave my soul in shul, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Holy One is the word Mashiach in Hebrew, Messiah. And Peter 
grabs this verse when he's preaching on the resurrection of Christ to the Jews. And he uses this verse to say, see, the scriptures foretold that he would rise from the dead. But notice, just a little hint there, without any explanation, he was in Shoal. He would not be left in Shoal. He would not be abandoned there. Most people go to Shoal and they're abandoned. They're there for good. The righteous dead before Christ were all in Shoal. That's why the psalmist always said, don't let me go to the place of the dead. Don't let me go to Shoal. Don't abandon my soul. Because there they are waiting. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're waiting until Christ comes and delivers the righteous out of the death and brings them with him. So Peter recognizes pulling from the psalm. Look, this is about Christ. Christ was there and he was not abandoned there. 1 Peter 3 verse 19. There's two mentions in 1 Peter. 3.19 says, He went and preached to the spirits in prison, which is tantalizingly weak. It's like, what do you mean? And then in 4 verse 6, the gospel was preached also to those who were dead. What is Christ doing in Hades? Arm wrestling match with the devil? No. There is none of that. He enters, he throws the gates open. It's not like, devil, please let me in. (laughs) He throws them open. Death trembles before him. He lifts Adam and Eve out of the grave. Us, man and woman, out of the grave. And he preaches. Believe or don't believe, but I am here to rescue you. Now, did they have options? Like, there's a lot of questions we have, right? We don't know. But he came and he presented himself to the dead. Ephesians 4, verse 7 through 10. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Paul, it's a long argument about the unity of the church, but this is a really interesting moment when he says, to each one of us, grace was given according, in accordance to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, and now he quotes Psalm 68, which we read the first few lines of outside the gates of Hades. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. What's captivity? The dead. And now they're his captives. He's got them. And gave gifts to men. Now, Paul writes, he says, now this he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. All things. Hear that? All things. Does that include the place of the dead? He can fill all things. But he had to go. He had to go there to fill all things. So that every knee may bow and every tongue confess, heaven, earth, and beneath So there's some hints in scripture. You could draw more, but those are the strongest hints. Um, Also, the Apostles' Creed, which is believed to have been developed somewhere in the 4th century, so not that, you know, it's one of the earliest creeds that came about. The creeds were developed by the church basically to say, in short, this is what we believe, and if you disagree with these, that's heresy. That's the whole point of creeds, is to distinguish true doctrine from heresy. And the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, Good Friday, was crucified, died, and was buried Saturday. And he descended 
to the dead. There you have the early church fathers believed in his descent into the underworld. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, Sunday, he rose again and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit too, but that's not relevant right now. So then, if you read the writings of the church fathers, which I know you probably don't, but um, they are all over this. They're all over this. It was an assumption to them that Christ ascended to the dead. Here's just one example, because we prayed at our... um, on Saturday and this evening at 4 o'clock, we prayed part of um, St. John of Damascus's Easter hymn. And here's one of the lines. One of his verses sings, You went down to the deepest parts of the earth, and you shattered the everlasting bars of those that were fettered, O Christ. And on the third day, like Jonah from the whale, you arose from the tomb. So that brings us to Psalm 24. Two ways to look at this. First, we're going to look at its context. What does it mean? What is the psalmist writing about? Then, we will look at the early church's view on this. So, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That's one key line. The next key line is, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And then it describes the righteous person. Then the third key line is in verse 7. It's also repeated in verse 9 when he says, lift up your heads, O gates. So, some people in investigating the psalm think that what's happening is, the psalmist is leading Israel into prayers to understand who God is in contrast to the rival God of their culture. Do you guys know Israel's rival God? You read it so much in the Old Testament. Baal, who, by the way, shows up in the New Testament as Beelzebub. Baal was the rival God. And here's what happened in their religion, their cult, I guess, the cult of Baal. Their chronicles said that Baal became the god of all the gods because he rebelled against Yam, the sea god, and Nahar, the river god. Interesting, because the psalm says that God, Israel's God, has established the world on the seas and the rivers. There's no sea god, river god. God put those there, he established the world on them. But, but, In Canaanite mythology, Baal fought the sea god and the river god who were ruling. And, well, in his attempt to rebel against them, they sent emissaries threatening, we're going to crush you and your gods, and we're going to destroy you, don't you dare rebel. And Baal has to then whip up his servants because they are quivering in fear, and their heads are ducked between their legs, and he says, lift up your heads, O gods, and take courage. Lift up your heads, O gods, and let's go and fight. And so it's possible that the psalmist is making fun of Baal's speech to his gods, and instead making Yahweh come to Baal's palace he eventually conquers and he wins his battle, he comes to Baal's palace and says, oh, lift up your head, O gate, because now Baal's the one who trembles before the God of heaven and earth. 
ancient kings, when they would lose battles, would actually, there's evidence of this all over the place in archaeology, they would actually rewrite their defeats into victories. There's a record of a, of a pharaoh losing 10,000 people in a battle. 10,000 people. And he somehow writes that off as a victory. And so the devil, the Bible teaches, this is, this is, you know, so going to our Israel Old Testament view of the devil, he was an angel, he fell from heaven, he was kicked out of heaven. And that the devil possibly uses these pagan cults to rewrite his defeat into a victory. Oh no, I wasn't kicked out of heaven. No, I went and fought these monsters and now I'm in charge of the world. No, the devil's down here because he was not welcome up there. That's the truth. But no, they rewrite these and, and eventually Baal goes and fights death himself, Mott, and he apparently wins. But in our psalm, Yahweh comes and pays him a visit and says, You are not Lord of the underworld. That's the only place you belong, you puny little pathetic thing. Interesting view, isn't it? To think about our other religions, the devil's revisionist history. I'm not a loser. This is who I want to be. So Psalm 24 is possibly... And it's, it does make sense. This is, this, this is Israel's worship of Yahweh, their God, as being triumphant against Baal, Lord of the underworld. And notice, who is the one that gets to go on God's hill? Not Baal and his people, but the righteous that follow Israel's God. He's the one leading them out of death and up to his mountain, up to his holy hill. So you can see these little hints, these little foreshadows of what maybe is to come. And that then leads us to the church fathers who jumped all over Psalm 24 and said, this psalm is Christ. This is him on Saturday. This is his descent into Hades. And so they interpreted verses 7 through 10, the lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. They interpret this as Christ coming to the underworld and demanding his entrance so that he can plunder and save the dead and bring the righteous to his home on his holy hill. Because Baal, the devil, all his names, Beelzebub, Satan, the deceiver, the dragon, the serpent, he will no longer have them. He can't have them because Christ died. How does he go into the, how does he plunder the righteous from Hades? You will die. That's the only way into Hades. You die. So he takes the cross because the cross is the gate into Hades. And the trickery here is that the devil would have never suspected, never suspected that God was coming to defeat him when he sees Jesus on the cross. He's like, oh no, this, and this, by the way, is part of the early church father's writings. They had a book that kind of made a, a made up dialogue about the devil and death talking about, oh no, he's not God. God would never come and serve people like this. God would never submit himself to his enemies and be betrayed and be mocked and be whipped and be crucified. Take the flesh because this person has been calling Lazarus, the girl and the, the widow's son from Cain. He called all of these out of Hades. He brought them out. I want this man dead so he doesn't plunder any more of my people. You better be right. They were wrong. 
St. John Chrysostom has this wonderful homily, which we read last night, but um, he said this. This is so good. Hell was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was purged. It was embittered, for it was despoiled. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. Hell, the place chaining us, is now bound in chains. But look at this. Hell took a body, Christ's body, on the cross. De- the, the devil in his greed said, Give me the body. Give Yes, death. Hell took a body and face-to-face met God. Oops. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw, but crumbled before what it didn't see. Which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. He said that, had the rulers of this age known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Is that an accidental phrase? Or is Paul explicitly quoting Psalm 24? I favor the latter because... The church fathers after the apostles spoke of Psalm 24 the same way. So St. John Chrysostom said, look, they grabbed what they saw, but crumbled at what it had not seen. It was the great trick. God came to Hades disguised as mere man. And the devil was duped. Not because God is the master of trickery, but because the devil was undone by his own greed. Chrysostom finishes, O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and the tombs are emptied of their dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we follow Christ. He rises, we rise. That's what it means to be him the first fruit. We're the rest that follow. To him be glory and power for all ages of ages. Amen. That's the end of his, um, that's the end of his sermon. So what is the meaning? What does all this mean? Like if Christ indeed descended and plundered hell, what does it mean? It means that he assumed our nature because he did exa- he went exactly where humans at that time went before he plundered hell and now we don't have to go there so he fully assumed our nature 100% this is so important because if he did not fully assume our nature then we are not fully saved for he can only heal the church father said he can only have healed that which he assumed so if he was only human except for the death part, then we're only saved except for the death part. If he was human except for the nature part, then we're only saved except for our nature part. He had to be completely like us in all manner and respect so that we can be healed and saved in all manners and respect. So he, this is what it means, he assumed our nature to trample death by his own death. 
How do you defeat death? Nobody's defeated death because everyone's trying to outlive death. But Christ beats death by dying the way in, by surrendering himself, thus liberating us from its reign and granting to us inheritance of life. So, the end of death's reign, it took us over in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. This is what we're getting because we're part of the wrong kingdom. But then Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He assumed our nature. That through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There it is, as clear as it gets in scripture, that death was a kingdom. Death and the devil ruled this kingdom, and Christ entered it through his death to break it and bring his people out of it. So liberation Hebrew, uh, Ephesians 4, 8, we already read it, but it says he ascended on high and led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This is the liberation. He's, he's not just defeating it, but he's emptying it. He's bringing the people out to go up to his holy hill to live with him. He's emptying it. He's leading the host of captives. You're now freed captives. Come with me. Mark three twenty seven. Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. How do I get the righteous out of Hades? I go there myself and bind the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And he does all this to give us life. You might want to turn to John chapter 20. Because this is the result of plundering Hades. It's a beautiful scene, John 20. Mary is outside the tomb. She's weeping because the tomb's empty. She doesn't know where the body went. But in John 20, verse 12, she stoops to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the head of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And what's going on here? She's looking into the tomb. She's looking into that realm in which the devil and sin have mastered for all of history. And when she looks in, she sees not defeat. She sees not loss. But she sees angels in the place of the dead. That would be enough. But more than angels, specifically, very specific John's language here. Two angels one seated at the head and one seated at the foot where Jesus had lain. When Israel had their great annual confession of their sins as a nation, they went into the holy of holies of their temple and on the mercy seat, they put the blood of the sacrifice in between the two cherubim, the two angels, where one was at the head and one was at the foot. In other words, when Mary looks into the tomb, the place of the dead, the place where Satan has greedily grabbed all of human life, she sees not defeat. 
she sees the triumph of the presence of God flowing forth like water from a brook in the place of the dead. What does it mean? It means even in the realm of the dead, the glory, the holy of holies, the very throne of God has established itself where once only Satan had control. Holy of Holies is not just in the temple anymore. The veil was torn. It's everywhere. But even more so, it's in the underworld. He's plundered. He's defeated. This is why I open by telling you that the resurrection of Christ is the final triumphant proclamation of his authority and victory over everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. That's why Paul in the earliest Christian hymn says that every name Every knee and tongue will bow and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the beautiful picture right there. So that for us who are part of the hosts, the captives that he's leading in his train, we, the church, Christ said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18, Peter, you are now Cephas, for on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against you. I always thought that meant hell will not march against us and beat us up. But then you go to Psalm 24. You go to the story of Jesus going to the gates of Hades. And then you use your logic and think, when's the last time you saw an army marching with a gate saying, aren't we terrifying? Gates are the opposite. Gates are meant to keep people out. The gates of Hades will not prevail against us. In other words, Christ goes into the place of death and his presence is there. So where the church goes in the places that Satan holds and the places of the dead, the church will not be barred because Christ pounded on the gates, said, let the king of glory enter. He ripped it open. He plundered Satan's goods so that the church is not barred from any place. There's no place that we are barred from. You have liberty in the power of the resurrection of Christ to go where death once held and to go to the lost and to go to darkness. And where we go, the light and life and presence and power of God triumphs in our wake. This is what it means to be his church. You can be someone who goes to church or you can be the church. You can be the host of captives that he is leading on high to rule and reign his kingdom over all things. And as Ephesians made abundantly clear, there's nothing that escapes his realm. This is what we're part of. And we say, I'll go to church on Sunday if something else doesn't come up. (laughs) We don't get who we are, do we? Oh my goodness, More prayer at a church? (laughs) But aren't we supposed to intercede for the world? Because we are the ones who have, we with Christ are being called to plunder death. How do we not stand and say, oh Lord, have mercy upon all people? This is who we are. I'm way over time, so we gotta finish. Um... I am at the end anyway, so don't worry. All right, so that's what our Easter vigil meant. (laughs) That's what it means, Easter. This is why we waited for Easter at midnight. We wanted wanted to see darkness transformed to light, death transformed to life. And brothers and sisters, you don't need to be part of a vigil service to be part of that. This is our heritage. This is who we are. This is why I took the time to explain it. 
As St. John of Damascus, the refrain, I guess you could call it the chorus in modern terminology, of his great Easter hymn, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Are you sure? Is Christ risen? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Now, our final moment here. Lest we be misunderstood, we are not saying that hell does not exist. All humans have free will. It just means that no one has to go to hell now. No one has to live in the realm of the dead. It is now an option. What a great option. I mean, not, no, not, not choice, but what a, what a great thing to have an option regarding this manner. So let us make sure that our affections are toward Christ that he is shaping our hearts and lives to look like his kingdom so that when the time comes and two kingdoms are before us, we don't choose the one our hearts always yearn for. You might say you're a Christian, but if you're yearning for the things of the earth, I know what kingdom you're choosing. You can say what you want, but Christ must have our heart. So I'm going to close with this quote from St. Macarius the Great, 4th century When you hear that the Lord in the old days delivered souls from hell and prison and that he descended into hell and performed a glorious deed, do not think that all these events are far from your soul. So the Lord comes into the souls that seek him, into the depth of the heart's hell. And there commands death, saying, Release the imprisoned souls which have sought me, and which you hold by force. And he shatters the heavy stones weighing on the soul. He opens graves, raises the true dead from death, brings the imprisoned soul from the dark prison. Is it difficult for God to enter death? And even more, into the depth of the heart and to call out dead Adam from there? Is that too difficult for God? Well, if the sun being created, he's talking about not the sun of God, but the sun in the sky. If the sun being created passes everywhere through windows and doors, even to the caves of lions and the holes of creeping creatures and comes out without any harm, the more so does God and the Lord of everything enter caves and abodes in which death has settled and also souls and having released Adam from there remains unfettered by death. Similarly, rain coming down from the sky reaches the nethermost parts of the earth, moistens and renews the roots there and gives birth to new shoots. Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and bestowing upon those in the tombs life. O Lord, may our hearts be plundered by...